Even though we know we're not supposed to talk about religion and politics, um, most of us do, most people do. Uh, I usually don't even have to bring it up with other people. People want to talk about religion and politics, even if we're not supposed to. Try asking someone what their opinion is about Jesus. More than likely, they'll love to tell you their opinion about Jesus. Pray for wisdom about how and when, but generally speaking, if you say, so what is your opinion about Jesus? People will be happy to give you their opinion about what Jesus is. And you'll hear some pretty amazing things. And there won't be any conflict as long as they keep talking about what their opinion about Jesus is, right? Strangely enough, then if you hear the end of it, more than likely they're going to say, what do you think? Or they're going to say, is that what you think? Or something, and that's where things get strange. <laughs> and perhaps there's conflict. But everybody has, that, I shouldn't say that, it's like saying always and never. Uh, most everyone has an opinion about Jesus. Most everyone does. Most everyone has an opinion, strangely enough, about what Jesus would be for and what Jesus would be against. What's interesting about this is it's nothing new. When Jesus walked the earth thousands of years ago, Jesus was someone who people had opinions about. You could say, what do you think of Jesus of Nazareth? What do you think, think of the, the son of the carpenter? And, and people would readily give their opinions about him. What I'd like us to do this morning would be to look at Matthew 16... Because Matthew 16 is a great passage to look at regarding opinions about Jesus. Classic case of people talking about what they think about Jesus. Here's who I think Jesus is. Here's who I think Jesus is. Here's who I think Jesus is. And it's awesome because at this point in history, Jesus asks the question. And then Jesus makes it clear about what the right answer to the question is. Super clarifying, super helpful. But not only that, he goes on to make clear what he's for. So it can be super helpful for us, refreshing for us to understand Jesus better. Who is he? And what, what is he all about? What is he committed to? Is he committed to driving low emission vehicles? I don't know. Uh, we, we don't know things like that. We can talk about those kinds of things, and people do. But what we do see is what he for sure is committed to that will help us to know what we for sure should be committed to as well if we're people who belong to him. So Matthew 16 is a familiar passage to Christians. It should be familiar. It's so helpful. Let's go ahead and read verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, I promise we'll keep... Well, let, let's keep reading for now. In Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What is their opinion about Jesus? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, not a surprise, right? Um, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood 
did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of, hev- of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We know later, we won't talk about this this morning, we know later that that's a temporary uh, mandate, right? Because later on they're going to be told to tell everybody that he's the Christ. So here they are, Caesarea Philippi, things are beginning to heat up, Um, conflict, tension in the air is getting more severe, and Jesus takes his disciples away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, and he takes them to Caesarea Philippi. And I've said it probably too many times, but I can't resist the illustration to make the point if you haven't heard it before. It would be like Jesus taking his disciples to Las Vegas. Okay? Um, It's where good Christian people don't go. Okay? Caesarea Philippi is known for paganism. Okay? It's known for all kinds of idolatry. Okay, it's in Israel, but it's so out on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and it wouldn't be where any Jewish person would want to go because it's so bad and, and, and awful. Some of you have been there before, and you can go see the, 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 the temple to such and such a goat god and other things like that that still are there as archaeological sites. The last group that went to Israel didn't get to go because of a snowstorm. Um, we were on our way to Caesarea Philippi to pay homage to the goat god, and... Uh, we couldn't because of a snowstorm. And people were taking snow and putting snow in sandwich baggies so that they could keep it. doesn't snow very much in Israel. <laughs> You're like, what? Anyway, I digress. It's, it's the bad place. Why would Jesus take his disciples to the place where he probably shouldn't take them? Well, because the right religion in Jerusalem is so corrupt and so messed up and the tensions are so severe that he would rather take them away so they can see clearly and get away from all of the cloudiness and be in the midst of paganism so that they can talk about truth. It's rather interesting. Okay, that's what's going on here. Enough about Caesarea Philippi Vegas. Let's do this. As we look at the passage's details, uh, let's look at seven conclusions about Jesus. Seven vital conclusions. I'm sure there are plenty more. I have a list of seven that hopefully helps us to see Jesus for who he really is, to see what he's really committed to, so that we can understand, so we can worship, so that we can follow, so that we can be committed to the same things he's committed to. Number one, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's an easy one. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But notice the contrast in verse 13. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. That would be good, right? Good teacher. Others say Elijah, another good teacher, prophet. And others, Jeremiah. That would be a good answer too. Prophet of God. A little strange, but prophet of God. Or one of the prophets. Again, a whole lot of strange, but these are all really good guys. Okay? People are saying that you are good. People are saying that, that, that you're like a prophet or maybe even one of the prophets. He's a sage. He knows wisdom. He speaks like other people don't speak. There's all these different opinions. 
Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms his answer in verse 17, right? This is pretty obvious, but to make the obvious obvious in case it's not obvious, you are the Christ. We speak of Christ and we know he's talking about Jesus, Jesus Christ, right? Christ of the Bible. But for, for those guys to say, those apostles to say, for Peter to say, you are the Christ. The emphasis I'm putting on it is the Christ. There are all, kind, all kinds of anointed ones. Throughout the history of Israel, there have been all kinds of anointed ones. It's used readily, okay, of those who've been affirmed by God. So David was a Christ. Other kings, all of those kings were a Christ in the sense of, they're an, if they're anointed by God for a task, all kinds of Christs, all kinds of Messiahs. Messiah means anointed one. And so the, the symbolism is, if we're going to have our ceremony or we're going to, to acknowledge you as the king, there will be an anointing part of the ceremony where you're acknowledged as anointed. You're, you're, you're acknowledged as Christ. You're the Christ. We could use all kinds of synonyms. We could say, you, you are the anticipated one. You are the ultimate David, the ultimate king. You are the expected one. All of those lesser anointed ones, all of those lesser Christs, all of those, to use fancy terminology, types, you're the antitype. You're the one. You're the one that puts all the other ones in perspective. You're the answer key. You're the answer key to understanding God's redemptive history. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. The Son of the living God. And if he's the anointed one, he's going to be the deliverer, okay? The, the, the one who, unlike all of the other deliverers, delivers. Son of the living God. Whoa. But all this makes sense, right? We, we need one who's one of us, but we need one who to deliver us has to come from the outside, not from the inside. And it's all here in Peter's statement. It's like the song we sing sometimes about the true and better Adam. He really needs to be an Adam. He really needs to be one of us, but, but he's got to come from the outside because of sin. He's the son of the living God. Wow. So he's unique, he's distinct, he's more than a prophet, more than a sage, more than a good person. He's the deliverer king the long-anticipated one, the culminating one. God's final word, if you will, in light of Hebrews 1. It's no wonder we worship Him. It's no wonder we call ourselves Christians. It's no wonder we talk about Jesus all the time. He's the one. If we're not, we're missing the point. Okay, let's move on to number two. Another conclusion about Jesus from Matthew 16. Jesus is truly known by supernatural enablement. 
Jesus is truly known with God's help and only with God's help by supernatural enablement. True or false, lots of people knew different things about Jesus when he walked the earth. It's a no-brainer, right? Lots of people knew lots of different things about Jesus. They even knew true things about Jesus. All kinds of opinions, and there would even be right opinions. He's a public figure. They knew him well enough to form conclusions. He's Jeremiah or one of the prophets, right? So they, 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 knew, they knew enough good stuff to come to those kinds of good conclusions. They might not be the right conclusion, the ultimate conclusion, but they knew all kinds of things about Jesus. So what I'm not saying is... God supernaturally through the power of the Spirit sent by the Father has to come for people to know anything about Jesus. Our passage wouldn't even affirm that. People knew enough about Jesus, as a matter of fact, for some people to say, because he did supernatural things undeniably, objectively, historically, to say he's the devil. At least those people were right enough to conclude he was doing supernatural things that can't be otherwise explained. Here's where I'm going, though, from our passage. And I invite you to come with me. To be truly known, to truly know Jesus, and not just say he's Jeremiah, one of the prophets, another kind of good person, or Satan. You've got to have help from above. You've got to have divine enablement. God has to do this. Verse 17 tells us this. And Jesus answered him, Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood, natural means, okay? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you have the right interpretation of the data. Not half right. You have, you have the right answer. You, you know the right interpretation. When you see me and you interpret, oh, here's who he is. You're right, and where does the right right interpretation come from? Jesus says, it comes from God. It comes from God. Now, we could cross-reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 1. We won't do that, but we could fill in the date a little bit more, and we could help ourselves to understand why this has to be. Why does it have to be? Because sin, sin clouds our minds. Sin causes us to read the data in a skewed way and to draw wrong conclusions, misinformed conclusions. So Jesus, knowing this, affirms the right conclusion and he gives God the glory, not Peter. This is helpful for us to know, right? This is helpful for us to know as we we do evangelism and we tell our friends and neighbors and sometimes enemies about Jesus. We, We know ultimately for the data to click and make sense, it's not because of our good ability to argue or our awesome apologetics, as awesome as awesome apologetics might be. Our great defense of the faith. At the end of the day, this is a great passage for us to learn from, from Jesus, the right interpretation of the data and putting it all together for a person has to come from God. It's one of the reasons we pray for people. They need special revelation, we would say, in theological terms. By the Father, via the Spirit, we would know elsewhere. I immediately had us look 
outward for application, but it'd be good to look inward for application too. The reason you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, and you've come to right conclusions about Jesus, isn't because you're so smart. Even though you are. It's because God has to turn the lights on. And, and, and work and graciously invade your life. If I'm a Christian and my next door neighbor isn't, it's not because I'm better than my next door neighbor or smarter or had a different, better kind of upbringing. You say, why are you making a point of that? Well, then my, my, my vision toward God, my stature, my, my, the word I'm looking for is demeanor. Isn't it a prideful one? It's one of praise. Maybe a little bit of bewilderment. Thank you, Lord. I don't know what... I, you have your purposes. I don't know what your purposes are, but you have your purposes, and, and I just want to praise you. Allah, like Ephesians chapter 1. Let's learn that from Jesus. Number three, another conclusion about Jesus is that Jesus started the church. It's pretty obvious, pretty simple, but probably helpful for us to hear today. Verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Pretty simple, I will build my church. I think it's important that we acknowledge the obvious because Jesus didn't start a club of self-styled spirituality seekers. He started the church. He didn't start, as we like to say sometimes, I like to say, others have said, he didn't start Jesus-anity. He started the church, the body of Christ. And we'll see, yeah, universal, but it expresses itself in local New Testament would teach both. Jesus started the church. Again, pretty obvious to us in this room, by and large, but it's important that we remember that. With the church comes formalities, structures, interpretations, doctrines. So sometimes we don't want Jesus to have a church be his priority. We want it to be a self-styled Jesus-anity spirituality because then I'm actually in charge. We've just recently finished studying Jude and Jude talks about the faith. There's something objective. There's an objective interpretation of the data that's been given to Christians been given to us, it's been given to the saints, and the saints gather together to make up the church. So we need to remember that. Maybe if that's too kind of obscure, you know, what does the cross mean? Well, if it's just Jesus-anity, well, it's, it's what it means to me, and what it means to you, and what it means to somebody else, and they can all be true even if they're in conflict, and, and it's like that. Well, but if he started the church, 
he gave the faith explanation. And we're going to get to apostles in a little bit. No, the, the, the cross, it's an example, but it's not only an example. The, the cross, it's atonement. Well, I don't really like the idea of atonement, but because of the church and the faith and explanation, it's atonement. Well, I didn't really like the idea of God being angry at anybody. Well, wait, wait a second. It's not for me to just to make it up as I go. And, and you do have a wrathful, angry God and, and a son stepping in voluntarily to absorb the judgment that we all deserve. And Oh, judgment? Yeah, sin so that we could be reconciled to God and, and have peace with God. And, okay, you know, that, that's a church kind of reality. We don't draw these conclusions on our own. And it's good and helpful to know. Otherwise, it's like, well, I don't really know who's right. I think I should be right. But what if I'm not? There's no certainty, and then there's no assurance, and then there's no foundation, and... Jesus started the church. We can know things. There's accountability. He would talk about that in Matthew 18, and it's tied to the church. Okay, let's keep going. Number four, Jesus is the builder of the church. Jesus is the builder of the church. We can do this one quickly, I think. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So he's the one doing it. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Just let that settle in. Pretty straightforward. Jesus is the builder of the church. Who would disagree with that? No one who believes Matthew 16 is true. Pretty universal agreement by Christians. Jesus is the builder of the church. But it's super practical also. Just think about it for a second. If he's going to build the church, then we don't build the church. Hmm. Okay. That's awesome. And we shouldn't be acting like we're building the church. That's what he does. It's up to him. He's going to commission his apostles and disciples and followers to do all kinds of things. But he's the one who builds the church. And we start putting two and two together. Well, there, there are these Jesus-ordained means, if you will. Here's the script. You do this. You preach the truth, the gospel. That would be a means by which God builds the church. You build it up as well. And you, you feed and you give the word. And there's just things that He gives us to do. And so if we're doing the things He gives us to do as a church and the church is being built, we can say, we did this. No. We can say, He did this. And by the way, then as the church is being built, we can have a greater confidence that it's not what we did. It's what He did. So what's our strategy for building the church? Well, in one sense, we have to say we don't have a strategy for building the church because I really don't want to be at odds with Jesus because he said he was going to do that. Now, you could mean it in another way, right? A strategy for how we're going to do what the Bible says we're called to do as a local church because the local church is an expression of the universal church. Okay. But let's not somehow get in the way of, you know, role confusion. 
But that is a problem we get into a lot of times. We forget that it's not ours to do, it's His to do by His means. And we start playing God and we build a house of cards and it's no wonder there's nothing left when it's over. Or, by the way, we're completely passive and we don't do anything, which isn't helpful either, even in light of what we see in Scripture as far as means and what the apostles will be called to do. Let's move on. Number five. Oh, by the way, as we go, number five. Jesus is unstoppable in building his church. He's unstoppable in building his church. We'll see a cool contrast when it comes to this. By the way, today at the end of the service, we have a a new member's um, welcome. Uh, And so I was wanting to talk about the priority of the church um, because today we have new members of this local church uh, being affirmed, um, being inducted, if you want to use that word. And so I wanted to have the church on our minds um, and Jesus on our minds. Uh, It's only fitting that we would do that. Number five, Jesus is unstoppable in building his church. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You can, you, can, you can interpret it either way. I don't mind. We don't need to have a church split over it. But hell can't stop this from happening. Notice I pointed to this side of the church. My wife's over there. Hell can't stop this from happening. Um, <laughs> that would be one view. Satan can't stop this because Satan tries to stop it. Or what he may have in mind, which is more likely, I think, in the more common view, Hades, the grave, Death can't stop it from happening. We know he's headed toward Calvary and he's going to be crucified. He's set his face to Jerusalem and he will go to be crucified. The founder of this religion will be killed. The other view is true also, even if it's not meant to be true from this passage, right? Because Satan's trying to get it to stop. But death can't stop it from happening. And and you know what? This is like an impossibility. The founder of the religion says, death can't stop me. He's not even a good teacher. (laughs) Death stops everything. Not when it comes to the resurrected one who will be raised, by the way, for his church. The unstoppable One, building the unstoppable church is awesome. It is awesome. But I do want you to see, on the face of it, it's nonsense. Because you won't see the awesomeness of it if you don't see that on the face of it, it's nonsense. Death stops everything. The grave stops everything. And isn't it interesting that his local context where he's speaking is in paganistic, goat worship, dog worship, you name it worship, whatever we can worship, we're going to worship here. Isn't it interesting he's in Caesarea Philippi and he says, death can't stop this from happening. Because he's in a setting, here's where I'm going, he's in a setting where where there's human-made religion, it's stoppable. I mean, if the curator for the goat guy doesn't take care of things and, you know, take the food away that people put there and go put it somewhere else and maybe feed it to his kids or something, it's not going to look like he's eating. 
got to upset, upset goat tummy or something, you know? It's like it requires human intervention or it stops, okay? Human-made religion stops. Death stops it. It may get restarted somehow because somebody else takes the mantle, but, it, but it's stoppable, in other words. Right now, human history is evidence. Go there. It's stopped. There's not a lot of goat worship going on. There, there. Then think a little bit further to Jerusalem. Sacrifices in the temple and all of this is going, going, going. Lively smells and bells. And this is an extraordinary kind of religious experience going on. And you know what's going to happen? Wham! Crashing halt. It's going to go from 60 to zero. It's stoppable, and it's about to stop. The Romans are going to put a stop to it in 70 AD. Jesus himself talks about it. But what we're talking about, because we're going to have a resurrected, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus, is even death, especially death, won't stop this from happening. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I mean, it's just great. Because if you're a part of this, then death doesn't stop. As a matter of fact, it's the, the plan and purpose of God where death would be the atoning death, substitutionary death. It's all built in the, the framework of the whole thing and how it's going to work. It's extraordinary. The crucifixion of the builder won't stop it. Okay, let's move on. Number six, Jesus grants and utilizes... Sorry, these are so wordy. What was I thinking? Jesus grants and utilizes apostolic authority for His church. I'll try to do better next week and have shorter points. Jesus uses apostolic authority for His church. Verse 18 says, I tell you, you are Peter, whose name means what? Rock. I tell you, you are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All kinds of controversy about this. We're not really going to get into the controversy this morning because we're doing like the 30,000 foot view. So some would say, well, he's not talking about Peter because there's different words for rock used. Okay? Maybe that's true. Maybe he intends the difference. And it's the statement of Peter, which is definitely a great statement. But what's also true is the apostles are the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says the, 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 the foundation or the, the apostles are the foundation of the church. So for the sake of argument this morning, let's go with view, view number, number two. It's the most natural way to read it. It's the way John Brodus, the classic 
Protestant Baptist commentary takes it. Takes it. It's the way D.A. Carson takes it. Peter, rock, I'm going to build my church, my unstoppable church that I'm building, and I'm going to build it upon you and the other apostles by implication. Compliments Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Again, you might take the other view. That's fine. There's merits. But just for the sake of what he's saying here, he's for sure acknowledging, he will acknowledge for sure Peter and the apostles' authority. They're the ones that kick things off. They're the foundation of things. And it's important that we know that Jesus, whether you want to use this passage or you're not comfortable with it, you want to use Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus founds his church on apostolic authority. And you say, why is that important? Because it really is important. It's really important because the apostles were eyewitnesses, number one. It's really important because they were taught the meaning of the events, number two, right? By Jesus. They were given the divine interpretation. They didn't just see crucifixion and then it's up to them to figure it out. Okay? He, he himself is teaching them substitutionary atonement, like in Mark chapter 10. He's explaining the reason for it, what's happening. He's explaining the reason behind this, and he's teaching his disciples. And then, third reason apostolic authority is important when we understand the church. Number three, they're the ones, and over their guidance and oversight through the power of the Spirit, who give us the Scriptures. We have it, we have it written down so that we can know. And so, it's crucial that we know that. It's not just, well, whatever. It's based upon apostolic authority. And the apostles saw, and the apostles heard and were taught the meaning by Jesus himself. And then, it's inscripturated and it's written down for us. So that we can understand, so that we can know. How does it help us? It helps us to be discerning to be judgmental in the right sort of way? That's right. That's not right. That's true. That's not true. Helps us to be discerning. We're called to be discerning. Read 1 Thessalonians 5. It helps us because then we can be stable and we don't have to be tossed here and there by every teaching. Now, this is, this is what's meant. We know that this is what is meant. Helps us to be stable in that sense. Helps us to praise God because we know the meaning of these things. And the list could go on. It helps us because in light of Jude, we can promote and defend the truth. And you know, maybe one thing we miss sometimes is it helps us to be humble. It can cause us to be arrogant because I know the truth. Arr, I love you. It's <laughs> not helpful to be, to be that kind of Christian. But it helps us to be humble in the sense of if this is what God has done and this is what God has said about what he has done, you can show ultimate humility before the king and say, I agree with you. You're right. Because the ultimate in pride would be to have a speaking God, an interpreting God, an acting God, and to say, well, I don't really know. Nobody can know. That's your opinion. 
Apostolic authority is super helpful. Okay, number seven, we'll end on this. This will be, if the last one wasn't controversial and provocative, this one will be, I think. Jesus gives the keys to heaven to the church. (laughs) I have to chuckle because I'm thinking, I can't believe I just said that. Jesus gives the keys to heaven to the church. Talk about provocative. Well, my statement isn't as provocative as what Jesus says. There's something, before you leave right now, (laughs) there's something important that I don't mean by that, and we'll get to it. But sometimes because we're so afraid of what we shouldn't mean by it, we actually forget to see what it actually says. So let's see. Verse 19. I will give you... Who's he talking to? He's talking to Peter. Who is Peter? Peter is the leader of the apostles who would provide the foundation of the church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's really important that we ask ourselves, what does that mean? I don't think it means that Peter was the first pope and we can go on and on, never mind the fact that guy never went to Rome as far as we know. I mean, it, But see, we go so far into what we know it doesn't mean, what it couldn't mean. Abuses. Well, what does it mean? Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You can unlock heaven with these spiritual keys. Whatever it means is pretty important. It's awesome. It's huge. Well, in light of what's going to be said by Jesus, like in the Great Commission, in light of what will be said by the apostles and moving forward, I have to conclude what he means is, I will give you the key, I will give you the the means, I will give you the way through which people can go to heaven. In other words, you are going to be proclaimers of the gospel and that is how people get to heaven. You're going to know the truth about me, Jesus is saying, and it's going to be the key to getting into heaven. The no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved, Acts chapter 4. You're going to be able to know this. You're going to be commissioned not to don't tell anybody. It's going to be tell everybody. Tell everybody how they can unlock heaven, if you will, how they can get in, or if you will, truer to text, how you can unlock heaven for people, and we have all kinds of things by that we wouldn't want to mean, but it's through the proclamation, it's through the truth about Jesus and telling people the truth about Jesus, for example, like Paul in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And faith in Romans chapter 10 is, it's faith in Christ for salvation, for entrance into heaven. What it helps us to do is to see the great, great, greatness of the Great Commission. Key to heaven? Astounding, amazing. It's no wonder it sounds so provocative and maybe unsettling. That's right. The church has the keys to heaven. We could abuse that big time. It can even be fun sometimes to abuse it in a perverse way. But let's make sure that we do see it 
for what it does say. When you communicate, practically speaking, when you proclaim the truth about Jesus and that He came here, He's a human being, one of us, born of a woman, that He did everything right, tried and tested like the first Adam failed, He succeeded in those tests. Then what? He, the sinless one, the spotless one, voluntarily goes to the cross, atones for sinners, is raised from the dead. You tell people the truth about Jesus and, and you say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, like they said to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. It's unlocking heaven. Which is otherwise, by the way, Locked. It's like motivating, it's exciting, it's extraordinary. What's Jesus into? I don't know what kind of car he would drive if he was living on earth right now, but I do know what he's into. And I do know what he's called apostles and then after them to do, and that's unlocking heaven for people through the proclamation of the gospel. It's astounding, it's awesome. It's motivating. We can see Jesus for who He is in Matthew 16. We can see Jesus for what He's about. Would He be about other things? We can debate about that all day long. But let's not have that be the priority because he certainly spelled out the priority. So there are lots of things about Jesus. I'll admit that we, we I don't know. We're going to guess. What would Jesus do in this situation? What would he do in that situation? Well, based upon what the Bible says, sometimes we could know, sometimes we couldn't know. But we know he's committed to building his church. We know that it's unstoppable. We know because of what he said. And certainly we know he should be worshipped for it. We can be thankful that we're not the church, but we're a local church seeking to express these things, seeking to be used by him, honoring him, worshipping him, encouraged, convicted, motivated. So I hope you are today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and for... Uh, the engagement that we can have through your word and through your Holy Spirit. We're thankful that you came into this world, that you became one of us. That you not only showed us the way, but you showed us that we would never make it. Because you did everything perfectly. And we're thankful that you took our guilt and that all of those things that would be held against us, as Paul says, were nailed to the cross. That we can stand before you not guilty, even though we still sin. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.